from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first scripture reading is found in Isaiah chapter 41, verses 1 through 10. If you'd like to follow along, it's in the Old Testament section of your Pew Bible on page 629. Listen for God's word to us today. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who has roused a victor from the east, summoned him to his service? He delivers up nations to him and tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely, scarcely touching the path with his feet. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am first and will be with the last. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Each one helps the other, saying to one another, take courage. The artisan encourages the goldsmith, and the one who smooths with the hammer encourages the one who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they fasten it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second text is a familiar one to many of us, but it is a little bit out of season. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. 
and this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, after a one-week hiatus, we're back on task with our sermon series, Human Desire, Divine Intention. And throughout this series, we've been reflecting on the desires and motivations that make us human. We've talked about what motivates us and how those motivations shape how we show up in the world. We've talked about how these desires help us to understand our place in the world. We've talked about how these desires are part of what it means to be made in the image of God, that these desires are God-given, that these desires are God-designed. But we've also talked a lot about how these human God-given desires can become distorted. We've talked about how these desires can be disordered and how they can fail to meet the intention and the will of God for our lives and for the life of the world. You see, at their very best, these desires help us align with the intentions of God. At the very best, these motivations are called into congruence with what God wants and with what God desires. But at their very worst, when they are distorted by sin, these desires can miss the mark. And they can begin to be employed in service to our own self-interests, our own will for what we want. And negative effects, we've talked about them, can come into our lives and into the life of the world when these desires become disordered. Well, as we come down to the home stretch of this series, we have one more week today and two more weeks to come. And today uh, we are focusing on the desire, on the motivation to be self-sufficient. The human desire to be self-sufficient. We celebrated a wedding here in the sanctuary uh, last night. And, and as is typical, I will lead the groom in uh, from this side door as the hour chimes, as Jens plays the bells and will come in, it happened to be that I was sharing the officiant duties with a pastor who's a family friend of the bride. And so we led the groom's party in. The groom uh, came in. He was already looking a bit nervous. We came to the front and you start to get under these spotlights. You get a little bit uh, heated and I think the combination of nerves and and the heat, uh, he started to lose color in his face, and I thought, this guy is going down. 
In fact, he reached out as he's waiting for his bride. He reached out for his father's hand. His father was his best man. He was standing right next to him. He reached out for his father's hand, and his father, who's about six foot four, a, a big guy, grabbed his hand and held him tight as his knees began to wobble. And then he mouthed to his father, and he mouthed to me, I'm not okay. <laughs> the bride and her father got down to the center. He, he was still holding his father's hand, the hand that is the groom. And it was part of the service where I wasn't leading it, the co-officiant. So I took the opportunity to step out to get some water, to get some tissues, and to offer a little prayer for our groom. And as I came back, I gave him the water. He gulped it down. He wiped his brow with the tissues. And eventually, he let go of his father's hand. And he whispered to both of us with an urgent sense of determination, I got this. <laughs> he willed himself up these chancel steps. He regained his color. He regained his strength. He regained his control. He regained his composure. And he got himself married. <laughs> there is an analogy here something that I think is inherent to every human being. Human beings have a desire to stand on their own. Human beings have an innate desire to be self-sufficient. From an evolutionary perspective, I think self-sufficiency is a matter of the will. When I think about self-sufficiency, I think about the will to self-determination. When I think about self-sufficiency, I think about the will to control one's environment. When I think about self-sufficiency, I, I think about the will to master the skills and the techniques required for human life not only to survive, but to thrive into the future. In light of God's creative evolutionary design, I'd argue that the desire for self-sufficiency fashions the blocks on which human civilization is built. Without self-sufficiency, without our ability to control our environment, without self-determination, without the mastery it takes to develop skills for human flourishing, our species would not be here today. It certainly would not be what it is today. Without this will to self-sufficiency, if you just look over the course of human history and how we have evolved and how self-determination and how control and how advancements in our uh, technologies and our economies and our ex educational structures, all of this have, have shown over time this will to self-sufficiency and we've built a civilization. We've built communities across the times across generations. It's produced the rule of law. It's produced the way we govern ourselves. And most of all, it has ultimately promoted quantity and quality of life. As a species, we have grown because of self-sufficiency. As a species, we have flourished 
because of our will to self-determination, our will to control our environment, our will to master these skills. And yet our road to self-sufficiency as a species has also led and continues to lead to violence, leads to enslavement, leads to dehumanization, and leads to oppression. You see, what I think happens with the will to self-sufficiency is that that will can become distorted. That will can be disordered, and it can morph into what Friedrich Nietzsche called the will to power. The will to self-sufficiency begins to change into the will to power. We become convinced that in order to control our environment, or in order to get the meaning and the power that we desire, the people and societies and the morality in our way need to be removed. They need to be taken out. Our great nation's history is not without tragic instances of disordered self-sufficiency. This past week, I was in Minneapolis with my pastor's group, and we spent part of our time with friends from the Dakota Nation who reminded us of the narrative of violent displacement, of inhumane treatment, of broken agreements, of genocide perpetuated against Native peoples. You add this to part of the larger story of our nation, the, the trail of tears, slavery, anti-Semitism, Jim Crow, racism, the marginalization of the poor, the marginalization of immigrant communities, the marginalization and oppression of, of non-white, non-male, non-heterosexual human beings throughout our nation's history. And what I would argue is, is that this is self-sufficiency run afoul. This is self-sufficiency being disordered, being manipulated into the will to power, the will to dominate, the will to obliterate anything that stands in the way of getting what I want. This, friends, is the dark side of self-sufficiency. And it's not just on a macro scale that we see this evidence. This desire can become distorted in individual lives. We know people, don't we, who show up in the world this way. Perhaps we are a person who shows up in the world this way. We become convinced that we have to show up strong. We have to hide our weaknesses, our fears, our self-doubt, and live by the mantra that we can rely only on ourselves. We show up as bullies or egomaniacs. We pick fights. We, we keep up our defenses. We avoid intimacy. We avoid help. We show up angry. We show up aggressive. We have very little time for the deficiencies or the weaknesses or the differences of others. We refuse to live with complexity and nuance and prefer to see the world through a polarized lens, case in point. All of this shade that Ellen DeGeneres was getting this week because she's friends with George W. Bush, criticizing her friendship because they don't agree on every point. We live with a polarized perspective. We have to win, we have to be right. We easily categorize people as winners and as losers, as friends or enemies, and we can undoubtedly discount the experiences and even the humanity of individuals and whole people groups on our way to the will to power. 
This is a hard truth that we must hear, for this is our corporate and our individual sin. It is a lust for power, a lust for dominance, a lust for control. Now, I could not resist choosing the text from Luke 1 this morning, even though it is a text a little out of season, as I said. It's a text out of place for October. It's one that we will hear in the season of Advent a few different times in our worship and in our devotional life. But this story of the encounter of Gabriel with Mary and Mary's call by God, I think, sets up a counter-narrative, a counter-story, sets up a corrective to self-sufficiency run amok, to self-sufficiency morphed into a will to power. And the first thing that I'd encourage us to do is to simply remember Mary. Don't remember her in the depictions that you see in the great basilicas of, of Europe, in the paintings and the art that shows her as queen. Think of her as a young teen. Think of her as unmarried. Think of her as living in an occupied land where a Roman oppressor, a pagan regime, controlled their environment. She's a woman, which meant that she was on the same social strata as property. She is the epitome of the marginal. She is the embodiment of perceived weakness. She has no control. She has no power. And yet she is precisely the one God chooses to put the world to rights. She's precisely the one who God will bear God's plan of salvation through so the world would know redemption. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that God chose foolish things to shame the wise. And the choice of Mary seems foolish to the world, doesn't it? It seems foolish even to us. And yet Mary is the one who has found favor with God. And here is the corrective I believe this story offers us. It's one that I believe we must receive. God's will to choose Mary. God's will to find favor with Mary reminds us that God is on the side of the vulnerable. Reminds us that God is on the side of the marginalized. And reminds us that God is on the side of the oppressed. God is on the side of those who've been silenced in this climate of the will to power, of those who have been excluded, who have been persecuted by our own individual or our collective will to power. The Marys of our world must find favor in the church because they have found favor with God. And this isn't just an individual mandate. I'm not just speaking here of our own personal Christianity. What I'm talking about is a mandate for the whole church. And it's one that we constantly must keep in front of us. It must constantly shape how we gather, how we love each other, how we forgive one another, how we welcome, how we practice radical hospitality, how it shapes our faith and our life together. One group of people who are seeking, we are seeking rather, to favor these days as a church, as a larger community, are the formerly incarcerated. Once a month, our Redemption After Prison Ministry meets here on campus. It actually meets tonight. It brings about 30 to 40 people, mostly men, 
to share a meal together and to support one another as these individuals make their reentry. Even after the trauma and stigma of incarceration, those who have been released face penalties including discrimination in housing and in employment, an inability to vote, an exclusion from public benefits, student loans, and even some professional license. Coming out of prison, just imagine this, with no job, with a record, with very little community support after already having paid your debt to society. You come out and there's not much for you. And our congregation is trying to stand in that gap, seeking to favor these men and women with welcome and with resources for healthy expressions of self-sufficiency so that they can re-enter this society and be productive in their citizenship. We've also joined a larger conversation, have engaged in multi-faith efforts to talk about what it would mean to end mass incarceration. Through the leadership of our pastor, Connie Lee, in community ministries, the way that she has built partnerships with Ebenezer Baptist Church, Dr. King's home church, the temple right down the street, our friends for a very long time, the Episcopal Diocese of Georgia, many other faith communities in Atlanta, they are trying to raise an awareness of the vast inequalities, racial inequalities inherent in our justice system. Our justice system is far from perfect. It's one of the best justice systems on the planet, but it still has challenges and opportunities. Despite representing only 12% of the nation's population, people of color make up 50% of the nation's prison population. And as, as we've long suspected, study after study has shown that justice is applied differently for the poor when compared to the way it's applied for the rich. These numbers and figures and statistics are out there. But what's really transforming my heart is that we have personal stories we have friendships. We have members of this church who have been part of that system, who are now practicing faith and life in our midst, and we have to be courageous in our advocacy of them. We have to find the nerve to love them as an antidote to the will to power, because I think that in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways, our judicial system and our prison system is an outworking of the will to power. And we must remember those who are on the margins as an extension of Christ's ministry. Look, he said this, not me. He began his earthly ministry with these words, a few chapters after the words that I read for you today, that I have come to liberate the prisoner, to set the captive free, to recover the sight of the blind, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's Jubilee. That is the mandate of Christ. I'll close with another remembrance of Mary. We remember her vulnerability. We remember God's choice of her, but we also remember her courage. Her courage is expressed through the final line of this text, let it be done unto me according 
to your word, despite her trepidation, despite her uncertainty about her future, Mary demonstrates a deep and abiding trust. It's a trust that's rooted in the promises of God, promises we hear from the prophet Isaiah who says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. What Mary is doing is Mary, like that groom to his father, is clasping the victorious right hand of God and finding that her sufficiency comes from the strength of God, comes from the grace of God, comes from the power of God, comes from the will of God. And let us make no mistake, let us be absolutely clear on this, God's will is not a will to power. God's will does not end in dominance, but God's will ends in divine love. It ends in restoration. It ends in justice. Mary allows God's will to overshadow her for her good and our good as well. Friends, we're called to be courageous, I think, in our alignment with the will of God. I think we're called to be courageous in our alignment with the will of God as an antidote to self-sufficiency run amok to the ways in which this world is so desperate for a will to power. I think we need to learn to pray the prayer that Mary prayed, let it be done unto me according to your will. We relinquish our distorted desire for control. We trust the will of a sovereign God. We relinquish our desire to dominate and divide others, and we trust the God who loved the whole world. We relinquish our desire to persecute and trust the Christ who was persecuted for our sake, a criminal hung on a tree. We relinquish our distorted desire to hide our weaknesses and trust the God who courageous, courageously became vulnerable and became one of us. I think we need to take courage, as the prophet reminds us, to take courage like Mary to become vulnerable ourselves so that God's love, so that God's justice, so that God's restorative power may be born in us as individuals, but may be born in us collectively as a church so that we may meet the gospel mandate for our time and for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen. Thank you.